Digging Our Past is a podcast produced by the Horde Historical Museum in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. To find out about ways to visit us or to support our museum, please go to www.hordemuseum.org. Season 1, Episode 2, Votes for the Female Folks. Welcome to the second episode of the Horde Historical Museum's new podcast, Digging Our Past. We named it that because whether we are archaeologists digging through the dirt or scholars digging through archival materials, we folks here in the museum world tend to dig history. I'm Marilee Lee, the director of the Horde Historical Museum, and I'm excited to introduce today's host, Dana Bertelson, who's the assistant director here at the museum. Recently, Dana put together an exhibit at our museum to celebrate important women in Port Atkinson's history in recognition of the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States. Today, she's going to share some of those stories with us. Take it away, Dana. If you follow any museums or historical societies on social media, you may have seen mentions of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. This amendment gave women the constitutional right to vote in the United States. Although this seems long ago, it's worth keeping in mind that women were interested in voting long before they won the right. Many women of color were not allowed to actually cast their ballots until the Civil Rights Act of 1965. This long process to grant women their full civic duty of voting began in the mid-1800s with the first wave of women's rights activists. You could even say that the rights of American women go back to the start of our country. Founding father and second president John Adams was asked by his wife Abigail to, quote, remember the ladies, end quote, when setting up the new American government. Hint, he did not. So, how did women get the vote? What successes and struggles occurred before August 26, 1920, when the 19th Amendment was adopted into the Constitution? How did Wisconsin women help or hurt the cause? Were any women suffrage leaders from the Fort Atkinson area? The short answer to all of this is that many Wisconsin women were instrumental in obtaining their right to the ballot, and a few even lived in the Fort Atkinson area. History happens everywhere, and it's exciting that monumental, as well as small but significant events, happened in our own backyard. Let's back up and define some of the more important terms and concepts before we get into Fort Atkinson's contribution to the 19th Amendment. First, what is an amendment? An amendment to the Constitution is just an improvement, correction, or revision to the Constitution that was approved by Congress in 1788. The first ten amendments are the Bill of Rights and lay out the civil rights that citizens have. Second, why was their effort called women's suffrage? The women part is pretty clear. But what exactly is suffrage? Like so many other words, suffrage is from the Latin suffragium, which was a vote given in deciding a controversial question or electing a person to office. Women's suffrage was closely tied to other social movements. The abolition movement worked to end slavery with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, ratified in 1865, 1868, and 1870, respectively, and the temperance movement's crusade to outlaw the sale of alcohol with the 18th Amendment, ratified in 1919. 
Women were instrumental in both efforts. However, after the passage of each amendment, women were told that it wasn't the time to press for women's suffrage. Indeed, they might even harm the cause they purportedly worked on and believed in. Through their disappointment and frustration, they continued to work towards their goal of getting women the ballot. Since we're talking about how women fought for the right to vote, it may be interesting to look back on who could vote in the first place. All white men? Nope. When we first became a country, only land-owning white men over the age of 21 could vote. This left out a lot of people, and women were not the only group that thought they deserved the right to vote. After the abolition of slavery, black men were granted the right to vote, but black women were left out. It took more than a century for women of all races to win their right to vote. Generations of women fought for it. Many died without the satisfaction of ever being able to vote themselves. Let's take a closer look at our home state. In 1848, Wisconsin became a state. During the Wisconsin Constitutional Convention in 1846, the delegation discussed the merits of allowing black men to vote. To demonstrate how ridiculous the idea of black men voting was, a delegate from Milwaukee asked that the word male be left off before the word suffrage, too. In this way, he showed how, at the time, both women and black men were not welcome in the business of governing. This discussion eventually doomed the 1846 convention, and another convention was held in 1847. Through this discussion, they decided that only voters would be white men. This group included immigrant men if they declared their intent to become citizens. Women and their role in society was in the air in 1848. That year, more than 300 women and men gathered in Seneca Falls, New York to draft the Declaration of Sentiments, modeled after the Declaration of Independence. It stated, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, end quote. The rest of the document then outlines how our country disadvantages women because of their gender. The Seneca Falls Convention was the first women's suffrage convention in the United States, and it focused on voting rights, but also the rights of married women and how to advance educational opportunities for women. The convention declared that women were autonomous individuals who deserved to make their own political decisions. Fort Atkinson had a connection to the convention. Like many other early Fort Atkinson residents, Louise J. Smith came from New York. She grew up in Seneca Falls, New York, and lived in the Fort Atkinson area as an adult. When Louise was 12 years old, she attended the convention and was rather enthusiastic about the event. Quote, a girlfriend and I attended it, and we became so interested and enthusiastic by all of the wonderful speeches and talks that we came home, cut up our dresses, and made them into the bloomer costume like those worn by many of the suffragists of the period. End quote. Smith was one of the lucky ones. She was able to vote in the 1920 election. Through the 1850s, Wisconsin women were working towards their rights, including the right to vote. As I mentioned earlier, the temperance movement, the movement to make alcohol illegal, and the abolition movement, the movement to end slavery, and the women's suffrage movement were all connected with the leaders and supporters often participating in more than one movement. One of these leaders was Emma Brown. 
Emma Brown and her brother Thurlow moved from New York to Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin for her brother's health and for the pair to advocate for the temperance movement. On their arrival in 1856, they set up their newspaper office in Fort Atkinson to continue publishing their temperance newspaper, the Cayuga Chief, which was established seven years earlier while in New York. Although Emma initially resisted, they rechristened their paper the Wisconsin Chief once they were here. Although they were both listed on the masthead as co-editors, Thurlow was the charismatic leader who wrote many of the editorials, and Emma was the main typesetter. When Thurlow died in 1866, many men in the temperance movement doubted Emma's ability to run the paper, and she lost the official designation for the Wisconsin temperance group called the Templars. But the members still subscribed to the chief anyway. After her brother died, it took Emma time to find her voice. Slowly, the editorial style and content shifted. Emma started to cover the women's suffrage movement in Wisconsin and included her opinion about national women's events as well. She advocated for women to have the same legal power as their, quote, good brothers had. In the end, Emma had a voice in the reform movement for both temperance and for the rights of women, including the right to vote. Emma printed the last edition of The Chief in January of 1889 and died five months later. Wisconsin women received partial suffrage in 1885 when women were given the right to vote in elections, quote, pertaining to school matters, end quote. Soon after, Reverend Olympia Brown, a leader in the Wisconsin women's suffrage movement, attempted to vote on more than just school matters in 1887. Because of her actions, Wisconsin's Supreme Court upheld the law and clarified that women could only vote in school elections. Most harmful, they also ruled that women couldn't vote on ballots that included anything other than school offices or issues, because they couldn't guarantee that they weren't voting on all issues. As continued fallout from Olympia's actions, municipalities were forbidden by the legislature from printing separate school-only ballots for women. I doubt this was Reverend Brown's intent, and I'm sure she was quite frustrated with the outcome. Women were able to vote again in school elections in 1901, when the legislature finally allowed separate school ballots for women. Nearby, the Whitewater Women's Suffrage Club was formed in 1882, alongside many other clubs throughout the state. Milton followed with their own club in 1884. Also nearby, Theodora Usman of Waukesha became the editor of the Waukesha Freeman newspaper. Janesville also had an active pro-suffrage base in their community, including Lavinia Goodwell, the first female lawyer in Wisconsin, who was admitted to the bar in 1874. Unfortunately, Fort Atkinson did not have their own chapter. In 1886, national suffrage leaders, including Susan B. Anthony, descended on Wisconsin to encourage women to vote for the newly passed school suffrage law. Again, this law allowed women to vote in any election pertaining to school matters. Women were permitted to vote in these elections because they were mothers, and the education of their children was within their sphere of influence. Ford Atkinson local Carrie J. Smith took the issue of voting one step further and declared her candidacy for state superintendent of schools. Carrie taught in the Fort Atkinson School District and was a known advocate for women's suffrage. Emma Brown endorsed her in the Wisconsin Chief, writing that her, quote, practical knowledge of teaching, end quote, was superior to the male incumbents. 
Unfortunately for Carrie, the incumbent was re-elected. This was not Carrie's only civic engagement, however. She taught the youth of Wisconsin for more than 50 years, wrote several textbooks that were widely used, served on several municipal committees to aid in the war effort during World War I, as well as a supply drive to help French orphans, and was active in civic groups and clubs throughout her life. It's interesting to look back to see who was against women's suffrage. The answer might surprise you. Some of the most vocal opposition to women voting came from women. At the time, society believed that there were defined spheres for women and men. Women naturally belonged at home with their children and caring for their husband. The men's sphere was out in society, working outside of the home, making laws, and in charge of institutions. Men, and many women, believed that women did not belong outside of their role as wife and mother. Their participation in the larger society would be detrimental to both genders. Women's influence in their family and larger society came from their religious piety and their role as a wife and mother. These women believed that if they worked to influence events outside of the home, they would lose all of their influence. It was better to keep the control they had within the home. In Fort Atkinson, we have at least one woman, Winifred Caswell, the wife of Dr. Harlow Caswell, who was on the record of being anti-suffrage in the book Who's Who of American Women, 1914-1915. This is not to say that Winifred was anti-woman or put all of her faith in men. It could be that she was comfortable with how society was set up and did not want it to change. We're just not certain. One clue hints at her position her mother-in-law's obituary from 1890. Elizabeth May Caswell was the wife of Wisconsin Congressman Lucian B. Caswell and an early Fort Atkinson resident. Her 1890 obituary reads, quote, She was preeminently a wife and mother. It was in this, the highest domain of women's attainment, that she discharged with marked fidelity every duty, every obligation. Ambition for the world's applause never beguiled her, steps from this sacred precinct to endow and maintain for her husband and children a home that should ever constitute for them the mecca of earthly hopes was supreme in her thought and effort end quote elizabeth definitely believed that men and women belonged in two separate spheres in society i would like to know that when women achieved full suffrage in 1920 elizabeth may caswell's granddaughter and winifred's daughter also named elizabeth was one of the first eight women in our city to cast her ballot. I would have loved to have eavesdropped on their dinner conversation that night. I would like to take a moment to think about how class affected how women behaved in their family. The ideas that Elizabeth May Caswell had about her home being a, quote, mecca of earthly hopes, end quote, for her husband was not realistic for most families. Her husband was the president of a local bank and U.S. congressman who could afford to be the breadwinner. Many working-class families, farming families, and impoverished families could not live up to this idea of womanhood. These women needed to work, many on farms alongside their husbands or outside of the home, to guarantee that their children would have enough to eat and fuel to keep them warm for the winter. For these women, their lives could be improved through the vote. There were a number of obstacles within the women's suffrage movement. Part of the difficulty of the women's suffrage struggle in Wisconsin, and nationally, was that there were conflicting ideas within the movement. Although many within the women's suffrage movement were part of the temperance movement, many were not. 
The temperance movement was an effort to make the sale of alcohol illegal. Why would people want this? Well, they believed that alcohol was harmful to the family. Drinking was more prevalent in the 1800s and early 1900s, with alcohol routinely consumed throughout the day, as it could be far safer than contaminated water, and it was socially acceptable. Also, husbands legally controlled the family finances and could spend it all at the saloon. Women were also fearful of drunk husbands returning home and harming the women and children. There were no legal recourses for spousal abuse as we have today. Those who believed in the temperance movement believed that if alcohol was removed, families could be safer and more prosperous. Then, as it is now, Wisconsin was known for their breweries and people did not want to harm the industry and workers or prohibit a cultural beverage style. Another split occurred both in Wisconsin and nationally on how to gain the vote and what tactics to use. Nationally, the National American Women's Suffrage Association and the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, which later became the National Women's Party, differed on how radical they should be with the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage believing that more stringent action was needed. During World War I, the National Women's Party picketed the White House, whereas the National American Women's Suffrage Association supported the wartime president. Thirty women were imprisoned for the bogus charge of obstructing traffic and suffered brutal treatment, including forced feedings, while they were at a workhouse in Virginia serving time. In Wisconsin, a branch of the National Women's Party was established during the war, and the Wisconsin Women's Suffrage Party, including Waukesha Theodore Usemans, called them a lunatic fringe of the movement. Between 1899 and 1915, there were 21 attempts in the Wisconsin State Senate and Assembly to enfranchise women in various ways. Unfortunately, all failed. By 1918, eight of the ten Wisconsin House representatives were for the suffrage amendment, although the Senate failed to pass the vote. Unlike other states, Wisconsin did not pass our own legislation granting full suffrage to women, and women had to wait for the federal amendment to the Constitution. Nationally, Wisconsin women were instrumental, even if their state was not. Wisconsin's Jesse Jack Hooper was elected the national director of the National American Women's Suffrage Association in 1919 and Theodore Usman of Waukesha traveled to D.C. to lobby for the federal amendment. On June 10, 1919, Wisconsin became the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment. Representatives from the states raced to be first to reach Washington, D.C. to file the ratification papers, and Wisconsin Senator David James had the honor of filing first. Now, just because Wisconsin was for the amendment didn't mean it would pass. 35 other states were needed to ratify the amendment before it became law. On August 29, 1920, the 19th Amendment gave women over the age of 21 the right to vote. Wisconsin finally amended our state constitution to include women's suffrage in 1934. In 1920, Fort Atkinson women were able to enjoy full suffrage. It was momentous enough for the Jefferson County Union to record the names of the first eight women who voted in the city. Miss Etha Hubbard, Miss Walter Snell, first name Abby, Miss Elizabeth Caswell, Mrs. L.J. Bennett, Mrs. John Hrobsky, first named Anna, Mrs. Louise Rickerman, first name Mavis, Mrs. John Hausman, first named Emma, 
and Mrs. Dave Clark, first named Joanna. Of these women, only one was under the age of 35, and six out of eight were married. I've already started to do a little bit of research, and I'm excited to learn more about them. Thank you for joining me on a journey through Wisconsin's suffrage history. I hope the women discussed today, Emma Brown, Carrie J. Smith, Louise J. Smith, and the eight women who voted in 1920, and even Winifred Caswell, and their stories stay with you. This year, we are celebrating 100 years of the constitutional amendment allowing women the right to vote. It was a struggle to earn their place in the voting booth, and women of color have had access for an even shorter period of time. I hope you are like me and are inspired to vote in November after hearing about more than 100 years of struggle for women to gain access to the ballot box. To register to vote or to check your registration, go to www.myvote.wi.gov. If you are voting by mail, be sure to have it to the post office by October 22nd. If you are voting in person, be sure to make it to your local polling place before 8 p.m. on Tuesday, November 3rd. Digging Our Past is a podcast produced by the Horde Historical Museum in Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. Today's episode was written and performed by Dana Bertelson and audio engineered by Alicia Bade. The theme music for Digging Our Past is Harlequin by Kevin McLeod, found at incomtech.film.music.io and used under Creative Commons License 4.0. Other music for today's podcast used under the same license was found at museopen.org. Full musical attributions for this episode can be found at hordemuseum.org backslash virtual dash hoard backslash podcast. For this and other podcast episodes, as well as additional information about the museum, please visit our website www.hordemuseum.org.